Welcome to Mind Games, the only podcast about D&D with that name, apparently. And we got the domain too, which I'm very surprised by. I'm Rowan Corbaton, and my co-host is Catherine Francis. How you doing, Catherine? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. Yeah, it's our first episode. Uh, for those who are new, our podcast is one in which we bring in scholars and experts from psychology and other behavioral sciences and try to figure out how their research informs or is informed by games like D&D and other TTRPGs. Today, we're going to be chatting with Talia Goldstein. Catherine, how good's your improv? How do you feel about improv in D&D? How good is my improv? I think you could probably comment on that better than I can. <laughs> um, as, a, as the dungeon master in, in, in D&D, in a game that we've been playing for several years now. I think this question around improv is, is really interesting, particularly in terms of connecting it to imagination. I think we all engage in this kind of improv pretend play in different ways. And I think for me, that the connection to imagination is particularly interesting because I don't have the best visual mental imagery and I I do struggle with that kind of mental imagery. Do you think it's mental imagery that is really the engine for your improv or I always got the sense that from a player's point of view there's a lot more theory of minds going on working like this 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 approach to understanding what my character would think about other NPCs or other characters. Yeah, actually that's I think that's a great point. I think it's about it's connecting your identity, right? Your own identity with your character's identity. I think a lot of the time as well, we're imagining those emotional interactions between mm. the characters in these worlds as well. And that really helps us to engage in that really effective improvisation. Yeah, improv's a weird thing too, because players, players do improv. It's kind of a necessary feature. But when we look at players, we know that they're doing improv and we accept that. But when you look at like the dungeon master or the game master, the goal is to kind of hide the improv, right? It's to kind of make it feel like actually this was all true and and set in stone before you arrived and now you're exploring something grounded. Whereas your exploration of that world is supposed to feel improvisational, right? I mean, how, how, do you ever do you ever see where the seams of improv are in our game? No, I don't think so. Probably because you do such a good job, actually. Oh. <laughs> no, but I, I do think that anyone who's running those kinds of games does have the challenge of crafting that narrative so effectively so that when players do things spontaneously, like, you know, setting an inn on fire, <laughs> that's then yep. crafted into the narrative. And then, the, you know, there's a lot of all well, the pressures then on the entire team, right, to improvise yeah, yeah. in that situation. What would your character do? in that spontaneous event that's come out of nowhere yeah which i think is is the that's what makes it so much fun yeah well look i think this is true for most dms but i'm white knuckling it most of the time so <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to come back together at the end of this episode and kind of reflect upon the things talia discusses so make sure you stick around and join us at the end and we'll talk again soon say, <laughs> say bye or something well, yeah um uh, say just bye or bye? I say, wait bye no wait enjoy the episode everyone <laughs> this is our first episode it will get better so Talia we're here to talk about tabletop role-playing games and D&D &D. so why are you here right now why are we talking together uh that's a that's a great question so you know it, it's particularly a great question because I've actually never played D&D &D 
in my life, despite many other activities in my life being intimately related to the kinds of things that I now know are part of D&D. So I think ostensibly I'm here because you and I and a collaborator, uh, Thomas, wrote a paper together on this concept of D&D and other kinds of tabletop role-playing games as shared pretensive realities, as we called them in the paper, which is this interesting phenomena where a, a group of adults, a group of grown-ups, will get together and engage in an activity that everybody has agreed on ahead of time is fake, is pretend play, and they will take on roles and they will um, engage in the world as if those roles are real and as if the elements of the world that they're engaged in are also real. So things like magic and things like battles and things like sword fights. I came to this idea because what I'm primarily interested in is theater and acting and theatrical performances. I have a background in theater, and that psychologically is the concept I'm most interested, the context I'm most interested in exploring is, is the theatrical context and the idea of acting and role play. And so D&D um, and other kinds of tabletop role playing games are a form, to me, they're a form of acting. They're a form of improvisational theater. They just have a different set of rules and a different set of goals than, say, you know, on a Saturday night going downtown and seeing, you know, a West End show or a Broadway show, wherever you might be. Right. And and looking at, you brought it up a little bit there in, in your publication profile, improv is something that features heavily, right? Mm -hmm. So like improv is a bit different from theater because obviously it's coming from inside you and I guess that's why I wanted you to come along for a number of reasons but generally D&D &D and tabletop role-playing have a bunch of very inexperienced or let's just say amateur people engaging in improvisational theater of a kind sure. right so how does how does the uh how does improv feature for you in thinking about creating worlds creating narratives creating fictions Absolutely. I mean, improv is so interesting because improv is both a form of theater in its own right and a way to train people to become professional actors. This actually is so interesting to me. I have just completed, and I'm in the process of writing a book on acting training and acting classes and, and how do you teach somebody how to act and what are the psychological cognitive, social, emotional elements and mental states and habits that are taught through acting classes. And the way that I did this study was I filmed about 55 hours of classes, of acting classes for high school students around the United States. So these are students between the ages of 13 and 18 years old. And I mm -hmm. went to five different school districts in different communities, rural and urban across the United States, and filmed these classes with the idea of doing an analysis of what happens in them. And one thing that was really surprising, even to me, who has been studying theater for more than 15 years at this point, was how much of the teaching time and how much of the classroom time was in improvised experiences and, and what I'm calling generative experiences, which is this idea that you're given some sort of prompt. In some of these cases, it's quite small, right? Just sadness, moving slowly, ready, go. And the students have to sort of move around the space in some sort of portrayal of sadness. And then in some cases, it's quite rich, right? Like you've read all of Hamlet, and now I want you to improvise what happens between 
scenes three and scenes four, you know, in, in this particular moment in the play and, and just generate text or generate movement. So for me, what was really interesting is these are considered training exercises to then be able to be a professional actor, then be able to do sort of a more formalized presentation. And it is the same thing as the kind of improvised theater that is sometimes presented as part of like comedy shows or part of um, comedy sports we have in the United States where people are sort of doing improvised scenes for for a long time. So I think, you know, role-playing games have that same requirement, which is you're given a prompt and you're given a character. And then within the confines of that game, you generate text, you generate action, you generate responses. Um, and, and it is something that can be trained. It is something that can be taught and that can have novice users and experienced users. So I sort of, at this point, think of it all on a continuum um, from you know, very, very open-ended and anything is possible to very, very closed where you have to sort of fill in all of the rules um, or you have to fill in all of the prompts to hold within the rules. But it's it's sort of all of a piece to me. And, and I think it calls upon the same like psychological skills, right? Because that's, I'm a psychologist by training. And so I'm really interested in what kinds of habits and skills and inner states are activated and integrated and used and fostered by doing these kinds of activities. That's super fascinating. Now, I know you don't have a great deal of experience with D&D, and we're going to come back to D&D um, and, and your potential relationship to it with me and some other people. It's interesting when you discuss theater and improvisation, it's, it's very embodied. Yeah. Someone in a, in a classroom or on a stage is moving their body to do things. But in like tabletop role playing and D&D, usually the most someone is doing is rolling dice. Maybe they're putting on an affectation or an accent in their voice. Like, does that change the, the, the context of creation? Does that change the way we interact with the things we create and the things other people create? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this question to the point where I've developed a bunch of research studies to try and answer it and have been like utterly unsuccessful at actually answering the question of what embodying a role does versus just thinking through or speaking through a role um, and how that might cause differences. From a personal sort of hypothesis, I really do think that the more you're physicalizing an action, right? So if you have an actual sword to swing around, let's say you're involved in some live action role playing, some LARPing, mm -hmm. sure. instead of like sitting at a table and doing tabletop kind of role playing. My hypothesis is that sort of up on your feet, swinging the sword around is going to be connected to richer and deeper understanding for the character. So if you want to call that empathy, or if you want to call that theory of mind, right, sort of better understanding for your character, their motivations, their beliefs, their desires, their capabilities. I think the more embodied you are and the more physicalized you are, probably the the better you're going to be and the, and the richer experience you're going to have along those lines. Um, there is lots of evidence from cognitive psychology that it helps with memory. So you're going to remember more and sort of be able to recall and use more information, the more embodied you are. Um, I do think, though, that there is something about saying things in the first person that's very different from watching the third person or even reading third person or first person narratives in your head, right? There's a sort of a whole body of 
psychological research on what watching TV or reading books does. But I think where role-playing games have maybe a different effect is in this, you're speaking from the first person. And when you're speaking from the first person, there's a, and particularly when you're generating text in the first person, again, I think there's a difference in depth of meaning and depth of understanding uh, than when you're just reading somebody else's words in somebody else's voice. Yeah, there's a really interesting distinction there about the first person and the third and and where the source material is coming from. Let me put kind of a jerk question to you. (laughs) Is it a process of discovery or invention? Or maybe is that a difference without distinction? If I'm I'm embodying my character with a sword or a bow or I've put a cloak on or or whatever it is um, in today's game, I, I personally have often found it's been a process of like discovery. Oh, I didn't know the character wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. But like, of course, it's all coming from inside my brain. So I don't know. Is there a more nuanced perspective on that? How do we think about the creation of these fictive characters, ones that we create, ones that are not prescribed to us? Yeah, I mean, this is such a... I think I'm going to respond to every question you have with like, this is such an interesting question that we have absolutely no evidence from a systematic perspective to talk about from. Which is why I think we need to talk about it, right? Because a lot of people have these questions and we don't take the topic of pretend play and adults very seriously, or at least culturally we don't. You and me do. <laughs> right, exactly. Sure. I mean, and, and you know, there's a there's two pieces of, of evidence that this question makes me think about, right? So the first piece of evidence is reports from writers, fiction writers. There's some, there's lots and lots of like, you know, narratives from fiction writers talking about how like the character walks into their head fully formed or the character gives them a plot twist that they didn't know they as the author didn't know was coming or um, the character reveals something about themselves to the author. Now, of course, nobody calls authors like dissociated when this happens, but there are (laughs) lots and lots of reports of authors talking about characters that they are writing books about as being fully formed. And in fact, there's even a, a movie that plays with this. I can't remember what the name of the movie is, but it's Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson. And she, Oh, Stranger Than Fiction. That's it. She He's the character in her novel. And then he starts acting of his own accord and like doesn't want to die. And, and sort of, you know, she has to respond to that in this sort of authorly way. You know, that is reflective of, uh, and I think there's one or two pieces of systematic evidence from uh, Jennifer Barnes, who uh, has now moved into being a professional author full time, but does have a PhD in psychology and has done a lot of research on the psychology of fiction. Um, And then Marjorie Taylor, whose primary interest in her research world was imaginary companions, right? And this idea of this like fully realized, sometimes embodied fictional character that children interact with, right? And and in both of those cases, the evidence is points to the idea that it's a, a, a separable, separable like personality um, that nobody's nobody believes is a real person, right? But in, including the creator of the thing, including the the child creator of the thing, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Kids are not confused about their imaginary companions when you really sit down with them and ask them, you know, is your, I'll use my own as an example. So I had, when I was three and four years old, an imaginary companion named Shaka. I do not remember 
Shaka from the first person, but my family loves to tell me stories about Shaka, you know, needing a seat at the table and riding next to me in the car seat and and these other sort of things that a lot of children have when they talk about their imaginary companions. But I, I can guarantee because we have lots and lots of evidence behind this statement that if you were to ask me, is Shaka real in the same way that your mom is real or real in the same way that your friend Sally at school is real? Children say no. Children are very clear on this idea that their friends at school are ontologically real friends, right? They exist perceptually in the real world. And imaginary companions may get a seat at the table and have a glass of water, but they are not real in the same way that my preschool friends are real. So is uh, Shaka or any of these imaginary companions, or maybe maybe I'm stretching it here, these, these D&D characters or whatever, okay, are they real like SpongeBob is real? <laughs> I mean, this is this is sort of the fun of fiction is playing with playing with these ideas of of what takes place in the actual perceptual world that we experience around us. Although, of course, neuroscientists would say that we're making up half of what we perceive anyway, right? Because our brains aren't processing everything simultaneously. But I think part of the fun of fiction is playing with this idea of like how close to reality are we going to get? And how far away from reality are we going to get? And, 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 you know, this is a, this is a task of world building and this is a task of, of task switching and executive function, which is, you know, when you, again, I have never played D and D, so I don't know exactly how this works, but I do know when you enter into other fictional worlds, you assume everything in that world is exactly like the world you're in right now unless it's been explicitly told to you that it's not right. So Cats can't fly unless I explicitly tell you that this is a world in which cats can't fly, right? A day is 24 hours long unless I explicitly tell you that days on this world are 72 hours long. Or there is such a thing as day and night unless I tell you that this is a planet where only one side of the planet faces the sun and the other side of the planet is always away from their sun or there's two suns or, you know, something else is going on, which... One thing that's really fun is I have a 10-year-old son who, in a surprise to absolutely no one, is really into fiction and imaginary worlds and creating like fully realized imaginary worlds called paracosms and, you know, had imaginary companions sort of from as young as he could tell me about them. But just to be clear, paracosm is not his word for um, his created worlds, right? Paracosm is a is a term uh, we we cognitive and social scientists use to describe this this created world. Yeah, right? absolutely. So so a paracosm is sort of the next step after an imaginary companion. After you've created some imaginary companions for yourself, you might create a world in which they live, um, or in which you know the magical elves and orcs around you live, or something like that. And, and that's called a paracosm. That, I think that's a really fascinating insight because so often in D&D or LARPing or homebrew or any kind of other tabletop role-playing game, you, 
you can think of it so often it's not just a set of mechanisms it's a world yeah. it's a set of assumptions we can make about what are the primary motivations of most things in this world is it crime is it justice is it making oneself into a god it, that's the thing that often sells us uh, that's the thing that we often buy into mm-hmm. for engaging in this pretense of this kind of pretense of play well and what's so interesting about that as well is that when we are engaging in these worlds and when we're buying into these worlds even when they're truly even when a lot of the physical stuff or the chemical stuff or the biological stuff is unusual right let's say we have multiple intelligent species sharing a world or the physics of the world is such that you know you can train yourself to jump 100 feet in the air or whatever right um we don't often break the emotional reality of the world the emotional reality of the world is almost always tied back to the emotional reality of the culture that we're in and we Mm. we sort of you know being in love is still being in love or when somebody dies you still experience grief or you know a long journey is still tiring and and it's funny because you know people people have described star wars as you know space operas and star trek as a soap opera in space and sort of all of these different ways in which you can break a lot of the sort of physical conventions or fantastical conventions of these worlds but yet you know when you and your party are on a long journey you have to rest and if you don't rest you start to get angry with each other because that's the emotional reality that we're coming from Sure. And and if the players aren't doing that, it's often the, the GM or the DM. Ah, oh, things are getting a little stale. Every Everything's going a little too easy. I need to throw a spanner in the works. Oh, you know what? You didn't tie your horses up last night, so they all halted. I guess I'd like to go back a little bit because you brought up Marjorie Taylor and I came across her um, a little while ago when I was talking to some some grad level students about imaginary companions and her work is fantastic. She has some excellent videos online talking about how children kind of recognize what is real and how they kind of impose their creations upon reality and and on their parents and on their social relationships because mm-hmm. everyone has to adopt or ha- everyone has to make a decision about whether they're going to a- adapt to this situation. So I guess what's interesting here is to you and I it might seem fairly obvious what the the connection between childhood pretend play and imagination is, but how does that manifest for me, a 37-year-old, right? Like, what's the connection between... Those things don't feel the same to me. Right. Are they? Or am I Am I the one who's confused as an individual? Am I professionally confused? Where do we sit on, on that, that spectrum? How should we think about it? Oh, again, one of these questions that, like, I really want the answer to that we don't have a lot of, like, systematic, empirical, social science research behind. I think, you know, the traditional view of childhood pretend play, the view that was really primary, let's say, through the once once we got over the idea that childhood pretend play was a bad thing, right? So from a psychological perspective, like Freudian and neo-Freudian discussions of pretend play was that it was actively harmful. That happily ended in the early 60s with Jerome Singer uh, talking about sort of the, the wild and magical time of pretend play and how it was good for kids to learn and, and for them to practice. And that really has been the prevailing view of what pretend play is for very young children sort of since the early 60s is that it's a way for kids to try out different scenarios, different emotions, different spaces for themselves. Then the idea is somewhere around the beginning of formal schooling, it kind of all 
goes away as an externalized behavior. And instead, what what children do as pretend play, which involves both an externalized behavior and an internalized mental state of thinking about the world as non-real or thinking about sort of what different elements you can put on top of your real world, uh, it goes kind of underground. And instead of being behaviors you engage in, instead become sort of mental perspectives that you play with as you go about your day. So, so, so behavior disappears, but cognition ascends. Exactly. Cognition becomes primary. And so the idea is that what was pretend play is now reading fictional books or watching film or television, um, making up rules for games to try and figure out how you could play with different counterfactuals when you are playing a game with somebody else, or even just thinking through risks and thinking through decisions, right, which becomes more and more primary, particularly as you become an adolescent. I mean, that gets us to adolescence, right? But the whole idea of fantastical pretend play in adulthood, uh, there's like very little theorizing even around mm. why we do it, what it does, why it's important. I, I have some some theories, right? One is we all have like historically way more leisure time and resources now than we've ever had before, right? So what do humans do when they have more leisure time and resources? maybe they go play, right? Like maybe this is a form of art making. This is a form of creativity. This is a form of play, which is what humans want to do when they don't have anything else to do. Yeah. I think there's also like, you raised a really interesting point there about external and internal processes. Now I kind of came to D&D a little bit before the pandemic and I started playing with a bunch of people online. I only met them once and, and some of them I never met at all where there was very clearly some internal things going on. So externally, uh, as adults, one of the things we do in in most things that if we can draw a line between childhood and adulthood is we start adopting more norms. We start creating rules. We start exploring spaces in a regulated, predictable way. There's certainly exploration space, but we have a lot of rules. Just look at D&D. There's whole books about this stuff, and yet we can do almost anything. And then there's the internal stuff about exploring cognitions and ideas that maybe I don't have access to in my normal space. So I guess there's two questions built in here. One is, how do you see the role of like rules, whether it's playing or it's improvisational theater? Mm -hmm. And then second, let's come back to this one a bit later, how we might use these play spaces, these opportunities to engage in cognition, to explore complex identities, for example, Mm -hmm. gender or sexual identities or other kinds of identities and ideas that maybe aren't safe to bring into the real world. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start with the, the the norms and the rules stuff. How do we draw a line between childhood and adulthood and, and kind of how we complexify our own life or our own play rather? Yeah, I mean, I think th- what this makes me think about is like research in creativity. And there's lots of evidence that the more that there's sort of a sweet spot for the number of rules in order to allow for creative thought, right? It's exactly 367 pages. Right? Exactly. You know, if I if I take you into the world's largest grocery store and tell you to make something creative for dinner, it's kind of overwhelming to pick and choose all of the elements and make sure that you come up with something delicious. But if I take you into a a moderately restricted pantry, right, where you've got two proteins and two vegetables and two sauces, and I tell you to make something uh, creative for dinner, that's also not enough. 
because you don't have enough variance in order to be able to be creative. So there's a sweet spot, right? Somewhere between a gigantic grocery and a tiny little pantry to take what you've been given and make something new, innovative, and useful out of it. And and I think that that's sort of for adults and for children, for everybody, the number of rules and restrictions that are placed upon you help you have a jumping off point to create something new. And so as adults, I think we we require both more rules when it comes to what we're allowed to bend and break and then fewer rules about what is possible. And of course, unlike unlike very young children, we can hold those rules in mind for very prolonged periods yes, of time. Whereas, absolutely. Whereas very young children tend to be a little bit more like our chat GPT, right? <laughs> Makes sense in the moment. Sure. And then things shift in the next question or the next sentence or the next scenario. And then they're just making stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, kids, you know, kids, kids have a hard time keeping rules and following rules and understanding rules really until they're almost between the ages of six and eight years old, Mm -hmm. because it's hard to track things and behave at the same time. But they also, um, they also can make more fun with less than I think adults can because they have fewer ability. Like you give, it's sort of the joke, right? You give kids a stick and a pile of dirt and they're going to be satisfied. You can get a three-year-old to play in that for like an hour. You give that to a 37-year-old, they sort of already know the extent of the possibilities for the dirt stick game. So you have to do something a little more complex. Deep cut, Talia, deep cut. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting to say they can do more with less and, and they're not able to hold these ideas in mind as long. But I guess... Adults, and I guess this brings us to the next point about internal exploration or expressions of internal states that we can't bring out. Like children are not great at that. We can talk about theory of mind and certainly some other episodes here are going to explore what it means to inhabit or understand the minds of others who are who are not yourself, who are not oneself. But what when adults complexify these things, we explore the spaces more thoroughly. And so I guess, I don't know, how do you, what are your thoughts on the ideas of people exploring gender or sexual identities? Or let's say there's um, a sober person exploring addiction or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've, never, I've never had an issue with gambling. I don't mind a little bit of a gamble. But I often like to play characters who are, if there's an opportunity to gamble, they do it. And I really like playing that because I don't know where that's going to end up. I don't know how far I'm going to go. It's not a problem I suffer. In, it's not a problem I um, have to explore in my real life. But fictively, that's very fun for me for some reason. Sure. Very low stakes compared to some scenarios I've encountered with um, friends and colleagues. But yeah, so where does your mind go when we think about exploring issues that we might be encountering in our own lives? Well, it's those low stakes that makes it fun, right? If I were to to walk into the next game that you're playing, where you're playing a gambler and say, surprise, I've talked to your bank and every gamble you've made for the last half an hour is now true. And sorry, you're down, you know, 700 pounds or euros or what have you. Gold coins, yeah. <laughs> coins or, or whatever, whatever version of money you're using, like that would be awful, right? That would not yeah. be fun. And so I think it, it is that sense of safety, right? And that consequence-free yeah. safety that allows for pleasure in the exploration right and i and i don't think everybody is exploring in these fictive worlds sort of purely for the pleasure of it i think i think for some people it's very serious and and they really are taking into account how they might feel 
But there's this, you know, there's this concept that's been well explored by Paul Rosin and Paul Bloom and, and several others of benign masochism, which is this idea of like, well, why do we like to watch scary movies when they make us scared? Or why do we like to listen to sad music when it makes us sad or ride roller coasters or eat spicy peppers? Why do we want to bring a character close to death? Exactly. Exactly. And it's because there is something we want to experience those emotions because we want to learn about what they do for us or we want to learn about how they might feel or we want to try something new. But we want to make sure we're doing it in a way in which we'll be OK when we wake up tomorrow morning. And and fiction. And, and again, this goes back actually to the original question about first person, third person, embodied, physicalized. This is where I think like the closer you can get to reality, there's again this sort of this like upside down u-shape right this n-shaped curve to there's there's a sweet spot of trying out something that would be sort of really dangerous or scary or full of consequences in your real life but that in a consequence free sort of named shared fictive environment there's a pleasure in it because there's a pleasure in trying out new things and, and seeing how I respond. And, and I do think people can bring those experiences back into the real world, right? I, I do think that you can learn things about yourself through engaging in these kinds of experiences that you can then say, oh, you know what, you know, when I was playing a, a more of a masculine character, you know, I'm a very femme presenting woman, but I was playing a little bit more of a masculine character. Like that felt good, right? That felt, I, I liked that feeling of power that I had while I was stomping around in my combat boots. Maybe I'll try wearing boots. Like, you know, the next time I, I go for a big walk and see how that feels. Yeah. So I guess that, that that's an interesting question because you've already kind of established the premise that unless otherwise stated, the fictive world adheres pretty closely. Mm -hmm. It abuts reality, unless unless we kind of decide otherwise, unless it's written down somewhere and we all agree upon it. And I'm going to speak to people like Thomas, uh, our mutual collaborator on things like Bleed, but like what happens, maybe perhaps you know from studies in, in, in theater and improv, but like what happens when we do find we like something that's made up? Exactly like your example. What if you are particularly femme presenting, but being a bit more masculine or dominant or aggressive or mm -hmm. is something that tickled a part of your brain you didn't know could be tickled? Um, again, great question. We don't have evidence for. <laughs> there's there's lots and lots of anecdotes, right, of, of actors that go into these extreme states and then can't let it go. Um, you know, people who spend a lot of time reading uh, fiction and then they, they start, like, taking on the voice of the narrator or the cadence of the narrator because they've sort of been immersed in that, in that language for a while. Um, you know, having a hard time sort of breaking out of of that world or breaking out of that mode. Um, but I don't really know of good evidence to suggest sort of how that transference happens or or mm. when it's a good thing or or when it's even a when it's even a bad thing. I think people assume it's always a bad thing, but I don't know if that's true, right? I think there's a there's a theory from um, relationship science, right? Like uh, like romance and romantic relationships and friendships um, that I'm really interested in exploring called self-expansion theory. Oh, this is Aaron and Aaron, right? Yes, Aaron and Aaron. But but you know, there's been lots of stuff done on it more more recently. And I'm I'm just I've read the Aaron and Aaron stuff, like, but I haven't I haven't read the more recent stuff. 
but I would be really interested in thinking about it in terms of fictional engagement, which is, mm -hmm. can you form almost like a parasocial relationship with the fictional character you're portraying or the fictional mm. character that you're embodying or, you know, the D&D &D player or the D&D &D, um, character that you are playing for several months, because I know that these campaigns can often last a while. Does that expand your sense of self in the same way or using similar mechanisms as like a really healthy romantic relationship, like gets you to try out new aspects of your personality? I don't know the answer, but I think it's a it's a fruitful area for inquiry. So I, I don't think you've teed me up deliberately, Talia, but uh, <laughs> I actually have an answer to some of that, or at least... Oh my God, tell me. So I had a master's student where we were examining how people, when they create a D&D &D type character and explore moral dilemmas, mm -hmm. you know, the classic trolley dilemma, but we put it in a fantasy setting with dragons and so on. There's a measure called identity fusion, and it's two overlapping circles. And if we go back to Aaron and Aaron, who did study romantic love and how we kind of incorporate other identities into our own identities, they used a very similar measure of overlapping circles. So fusion and romantic love kind of have this direct lineage. And we found that people who were more, we called it um, cognitively permeable, mm -hmm. they were less able or less willing to draw a hard boundary between player self and the character self. And we found that after a number of moral dilemmas, I think they went through five or six fairly salient moral dilemmas, that their own identity was being influenced by the character they created. Mm. Um, now, we hadn't had the opportunity to really play around with the, the intensity of the moral dilemmas and so on, but we did find that there seems to be an individual difference where people are more or less able or willing to allow things to permeate into their own brain. And it did seem to influence certain measures of self-concept and self-identity. So the, the extension of this work, and I'm speaking very speculatively here, is, is that people who are exploring addiction, gender or sexual identities, or any number of things out there, it does seem to go both ways. It goes out into the game world, but it does bounce back into the skull and seem to inform in a very meaningful way how they think about themselves, which... That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and what it reminds, it reminds me of two things actually. So the first is some of the studies on helpful video games and this idea that embodying an avatar, particularly like an avatar where you then are in a virtual reality space and you're seeing, like when you look down at your hands, you are of a different race or a different gender, um, or you are in a virtual reality space sort of acting as if you uh, are unhoused, as if you you're homeless and then you have to spend a night on a bus, um, there, there are real world effects of engaging in those kinds of virtual reality experiences where people then give more money to charity or are less likely to, to act in a racist way against other people, right? So this is showing some, some effects of, of, this, of this merging, right, or this learning. Well, I actually intend to have um, Catherine Francis, who's actually a colleague of mine in my department who works in VR and morality. Mm. And she works on training firefighters to deal with high intensity situations and how nurses can avoid becoming emotionally calloused to the rigors of their very demanding profession. Mm -hmm. So we will be talking to someone who really is at the at 
right on the lines there for that one. Oh, I love that. And I love I love the idea of psychological inoculation, right? And and the sort of use of role play and acting as a form of psychological inoculation so that when you're in the real scenario, you sort of already know how to act because you've already done it in a role playing experience. It's strange. I used to do martial arts when I was younger for for a very long time until I was well into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never been in a fight in the street, but I've certainly helped diffuse a few. And it's that role playing that I engaged in that was drilled in a very formulaic, rule-based, ritualistic kind of way. I was able to handle some situations that, I mean, I'd like to think an untrained person might be rattled by them, but mm-hmm. because of those experiences, I could generalize to the real world where actually this might have real consequences mm-hmm. for me right now, but it was enough to bring the situation down to generalize outwards. So. Well, and I do think that children are sort of naturally predisposed to engage in their pretend play for this type of practice, because we know that there's large cultural variations in the topics that children engage in naturally when they have free choice. So children who get taken to the dentist They pretend play dentist. Children who get taken to school pretend play school. Children whose parents go spearfishing pretend play spearfishing. And children whose parents break open coconuts with machetes pretend play coconut machete game, right? So I think that is incredibly strong evidence that the the sort of I, I, I hate the word like natural function, but the, the way in which very young children seem predisposed to pretend play is a direct reflection of the, the context and the environment that they are growing up in. Right. And quite famously, like the Amish do not encourage pretend play, but even within Amish communities, children will pretend play to do Amish activities. Yes. Sweeping raising barns, doing all the kinds of agricultural and pastoral things the Amish do. Yes. So I think let's let's move on a little bit here. So another stream of your research interests involve empathy. And I think we've been like touching on the topic of empathy over and over. Absolutely. So how is it that these potentially self-generated characters, these co-constructed worlds, these grand narratives that we might imagine ourselves in uh, with our characters, how does that how do we engage in empathy with things that don't exist? <laughs> why why do we care about things that don't exist? Why do we care about things that we know at the table really only extend to the table tonight, the table next week, the table next month? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, not to turn it back around on you, but what do you mean by empathy? Like what, how are you defining that for yourself? Because there's so many definitions and and depending on sort of how you think about it shapes the kind of way to think about it. Sure. I won't, I won't, I won't put my psychologist hat on. I'll put my game master hat on. Yeah, that's good. Why, why do I care when a fictional character run by another player, a friend of mine dies? Why do I care when Gugag the Barbarian is burned up by the dragon? Sure. Because I want that as a game master. That's exciting. That's tension. That's, that makes things interesting in a way they weren't two minutes ago, but, but I still feel bad. Right. Or I feel loss or grief or something. Right. Right. I mean, so there's a bunch of of possibilities here, right? So one one possibility is that because this character is being embodied by your friend and being played by your friend, what you're actually feeling is a sort of vicarious care for your friend's investment in the character, right? And and if it was a stranger playing the character, you might feel something different. So that's one possibility. Um, another possibility is... Anytime we humanize a character, and by humanize, I mean give the character 
thoughts, knowledge, belief, desire, emotion, intention, right? When we start giving complexities, agencies, mental states, the the sort of way in which most people engage with the world is as soon as you're sort of tuned into somebody else's humanity, right? Somebody else's agency, the naturalistic response is to kind of care what happens to them. Humans are social creatures. We live in social environments. We need each other in order to survive. And so the sort of underlying predisposed state is once I see you as humanized, right? Once I see you as, as fully human um, or having human-like characteristics, um, then I'm going to have an emotional response to what happens to you. I would argue, though, just to take the flip side of it, right, mm-hmm. that um, you are not having an emotional response or care to the barbarian being burned by the dragon mm-hmm. that you would if your friend was caught in a fire, right? Like if your friend's house caught on fire, your emotional response to that scenario would be incredibly different, much more advanced, have lots of other complexities to it. So there is a, a containment. Maybe I'm being a, a jerk and asking this, but I, again, I've got my GM hat on. Is it different or is it just more extreme? It's the, like, so if I, if I feel grief at the death of a fictive character, is that just normal human grief that I might experience at the passing of a grandparent, but diluted? Mm-hmm. Or is it something different qualitatively? Yeah, this is the primary question in the philosophy of aesthetics and aesthetic emotion. Like literally, that is the foundational question that that philosophers of aesthetics and philosophers of art have been dealing with since time immemorial. immemorial. So t- take a position though, A or B? Me? Okay. I think... It is pregnant pause. I know, right? I'm I really am <laughs> I really am trying to, to figure out a way to land in the middle. Okay, here's what I think it is. I think the emotion itself, so if you're feeling care or if you're feeling sadness or if you're feeling anger, is the same thing, just significantly less, right? Okay. I believe in the theory of constructed emotion, which is probably too complex to get into right now, but it basically says that emotion is not one thing. It's not like emotion is a thing that exists in your brain, right? Emotion, such that we put a label on it, is a combination of previous experiences, the context you're currently in, your physiological reactions, your understanding of the requirements of the environment, and your linguistics. You sort of put all those pieces together and you get what we might call an emotion. It's like an emergent problem property of our cognition. It's an emergent property of a bunch of different things coming together. Um, And, you know, I have recommendations for the work of Jim Russell and Lisa Feldman Barrett, if you're interested in this sort of totally radical, but I think actually scientifically correct view on what an emotion is. Um, However, I think the sadness is the same sadness at a much lesser quality. However, I think which emotion you apply to which scenario is different. So, You may be experiencing care at the barbarian being burned by the dragon, but you're probably not experiencing panic in the same way that if your friend was caught in a burning house, you might experience panic and then the care once you sort of know what's happening. So I think the emotion itself at a lesser quality, but actually it's maybe a qualitatively different emotion in fictional worlds than it is in real worlds. Is that my way of getting it both? Can I can I have both? Five stars, full points. <laughs> Thank you. And sure, that, and I mean that ties back to the idea of we're exploring things in safe spaces, yes. right? The stakes are low. 
it can be very enjoyable to feel fear or grief or loss or elation, victory and triumph, but maybe they don't matter and they're not the same as winning the lottery and they're not the same as the police knocking on your door to share some terrible news. Sure. I think emotions in fiction are much um, simpler and purer than emotions in the real world. I think... Purer. Purer. Defend, defend, defends pure. More pure. <laughs> you can feel pure... I think in the real world, it is rare that we feel pure sadness. I think sadness often has a lot of other elements to it, right? You may also be feeling fear or anger. You, there may be bittersweetness or nostalgia to it. And contrary-wise, you know, I'm offered a, a wonderful job in a new city. I'm excited, but like, oh my God, the stress of moving, of relocating, of uprooting. It's a complex constellation of things. Absolutely. I think that the emotions we are both presented with and that we experience in response to fiction are are simpler, are purer. Are they they are um less sort of tinged with all of the complexity of being an adult in reality, which is like a super complex thing to be. So so let me be a little bit um poetical here. Um you know, the game of uh, engaging in tabletop role playing D&D &D and these kinds of things we're, we're titrating emotions out. Mm. We're trying to pull on a thread that is pure pride, that is pure grief. We don't tend to be too messy mm -hmm. in these experiences and we can all share in that single focal point when we slay the dragon or when we rescue the princess or when Gugog the barbarian dies mm -hmm. because there's no family to care about. There's no next of kin, right? Yeah. So some of your other research focuses on kind of how we develop our empathy. And, and um, so how does like, how do we, what do we learn from this kind of role play? And in particular, let me, let me make this question a little bit more complex. What do we learn when we're kind of willingly and voluntarily entering into this role play we're choosing to do it rather than our teacher is making us for example so what does it mean when i go out and play a game on the weekend that i'm learning about myself or learning about my capacity to process things mm -hmm. yeah i think when it comes to empathy and and when it comes to sort of thinking about caring for other people or other people's complexity or other people's emotions going to play a character expands I think I, I think it expands the player in two ways. This is sort of where my my work on acting and acting classes and theater comes in, which is I think when you're learning how to play characters and when you're playing lots of different characters, you're both learning about your own boundaries around your emotional life and yourself. So what does it feel like when I'm nostalgic? What does it feel like when I have pure caring for another person or or pure grief or pure love, right? What, what do all of those experiences feel like in their different forms? So that's sort of some of the self-understanding. And, and part of that too is how do I regulate that? How do I embody that? What does that feel like? How do I make that bigger? How do I make that smaller? Then the other thing that I think going out and playing a lot of characters does is it expands who you think of as holding agency and who you think of as worthy of empathy or worthy of care. I think, you know, there are arguments that are often made in the effective altruism literature or, um, you know, Paul Bloom made in his Against Empathy book and, and many other people have taken up, which is this idea that our natural, I talked a little bit earlier about like our natural caring for other people really comes out when we see them as human. But of course, 
we've seen historically over and over again, dehumanization of other people is like fairly easy to do and extremely effective, right? It's it's and bad and, and very bad. bad, very very bad. Like not effective in a good way, right? Effective, yeah. effective in a bad way. Effective in a psychological way, in that you can cause a lot of harm by dehumanizing a group of people. So I think one of the things that acting does is it invites you to humanize characters that you may not otherwise have come across in your daily life, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe there is this person who's really addicted to gambling and you don't know anybody who's really addicted to gambling in your everyday life. And so maybe you have some assumptions, some stereotypes about people who have an addiction to gambling. But then by playing that person and by trying to figure out their motivations and trying to figure out the consequences and trying to figure out their intentions and their emotions, you're adding humanity to that character, to that person. And therefore, this is sort of the mechanism that I think about. Therefore, if you are to come across somebody who's struggling with their gambling, you may have deeper insight mm -hmm. into the fullness of their humanity, right? People are complex beings. Um, we don't just have one goal and one thread in our life. And so allowing yourself to try on different people and to understand different people may have this effect of increasing where you can see humanity and therefore who you're going to feel empathy for. Sure. So th this is really interesting about how we feel about these other things, these creations, these fictions. I know you haven't played D&D &D, uh, and we'll come to that in just a moment, but like <laughs> in, in terms of your improv, in terms of your theater, I know you're out there, you're engaged in the community. What character that you've inhabited has influenced you the most, do you think? What has left a, a big old stamp on your brain more than any others? Oh my God, that's an amazing question. I've never been asked that question before. So it's fascinating because I think, um, at least for the gamers out there, if you asked me who the character that I've run was most influential, I have an answer like that. Sure. Um, and, and I'd like to imagine that, well, maybe we can jump ahead a little bit. We'll give you time to think, but like, what do you expect to happen? So you have agreed to play D&D &D with me and a bunch of other psychologists and anthropologists. I what have. do you think is going to happen in that experience? We're going to play um, a, a, a small arc campaign, maybe two or three games. Mm -hmm. you, you don't know any details yet, but what do you think is going to happen here that's maybe different from your improv or theater experience? Mm -hmm. What do you expect and what are you hoping for, I guess? Well, I think I hope that I can not analyze the experience while I'm having it, <laughs> which... You know, this is this is this is the great like curse of being a critic in theater. People often write about, which is you can't enjoy theater anymore because you're too busy being a critic. And I don't want to be such a psychologist of fiction that I cannot enjoy the fiction of engaging in the role play. I'm I'm actually guessing that I'm gonna be a little self conscious about it. Okay. Um, and that is probably because despite all of my talk about fiction and all of my reading and all of my engagement, like I don't I haven't portrayed a character in over a decade at this wow. point. Okay. It has been I mean, it, it is currently twenty twenty three. 
The last year I was on a stage performing was 2010. And the last time I really did a show, like a full rehearsal performance run of a show was 2005. Wow. Okay. So it has been a while since I've had to do anything that other than portray a sort of like professor presentational version of the self. So that character I'm great at. Fictional characters, I think it's going to feel a little self-conscious. I'm a little concerned about how self-conscious I'll be. That's fascinating. Um, it, and, you know, one of the reasons I want to bring someone like you who's naive to D&D and tabletop role-playing, but, like, obviously no amateur when it comes to understanding what goes on in the brain and, and all the constituent elements. Mm. If I could speculate, and I, I've known you for a little while, Talia, mm -hmm. um, professionally, and just, I think you're going to lose yourself in it. I think the act of creating a character, be it some raging barbarian, a wizard, some some bookish monk or a musical bard or, or whatever it is that you want to create, I don't think you're going to be self-conscious. I think you're going to lose yourself in it pretty quick. And I think it's because the rules, you're going to be like, how can I make this creation do the thing that this thing wants to do? Mm -hmm. How do I flip off that tree? How do I quell the crowd? How do I slaughter all of my enemies oh, in the fastest time possible? I don't think you'll be <laughs> self-conscious, but it'll be a wonderful experiment to run. I'm excited. So Talia, if, if, if anyone who's listening to this wants to learn more, a bit more about your research um, and your interests, is there any way for them to uh, read that, to figure out who you are, to contact you? Sure. Well, as long as it continues to exist, I am still on Twitter. Um, we'll see how much longer it'll actually stick around, but I'm at Talia Goldstein. So that's T-H-A-L-I-A. G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. Um, you can also always find me at my lab's website. So that is ssit.gmu.edu. So it's SIT with two S's, um, which stands for Social Skills, Imagination, and Theater. I really like wanted to name my lab in a in a in a fully fully realized way um, so that's that's my website um and are you taking grad students Tom? <laughs> i i actually by the time this podcast comes out we will be almost into the 2024 cycle and i do anticipate taking a master student at least one maybe two and a phd student in the fall of 2024 and speaking as a, as, a, as, a, as a colleague and an academic, it's never a bad thing to receive an email from someone who's like, hey, I want to learn more. Is there an opportunity to talk? So even, even if the window is closed, uh, I, I'm sure you would welcome interesting dialogue with people who just want to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. And I, you know, I plan on having my lab be active for, for quite a long time. So, so even if this is being listened to far into the future, I'm likely still around. Um, and then if people are, are interested in reading sort of more um, less academic versions of my work, uh, I have a Psychology Today blog called The Mind on Stage, which is a fairly Googleable, searchable term. Um, and an, an article that just came out in the Washington Post on theater and empathy that talks about lots of different people who are doing work in the theater space specifically for empathy outcomes with autistic kids, neurotypical kids, language, English language learners, new immigrants, um, as well as some of the work from my lab. So if you search up theater and empathy, Washington Post, um, that article just came out and it's, it's a really nice summary of the stuff we've been doing. 
we'll absolutely link to that. Talia, thank you so much for your time here. I, I've learned so much more than I thought I would. It's been fantastic. Thanks for having me. This was really fun and I can't wait to play d and I'm very excited for the possibilities. So Talia, welcome back. Uh, it's been many moons since we recorded our first episode, um, but it was worth bringing you back because you have a new book out. Is that right? I do. My book, Why Theater Education Matters, Understanding the Cognitive, Social, and Emotional Benefits, is out July 26th, 2024. And what I do in this book is I basically discuss all of the connections between psychology and theater and acting classrooms um, with the framework of the habits of mind. So habits of mind are this educational, psychological concept about techniques and mindsets and skills that you can bring to bear to solve problems and fulfill tasks and engage in creative acts. So my lab group and I went around the United States for about three years filming acting classes for adolescents of all different kinds, expert acting classes in conservatories and general education acting classes where this may be the only time these students ever perform characters in in all of education, right? They take it for one semester, you know, two hours a week and then they're done. And we filmed and then we did a, a long-term, pretty extensive qualitative analysis of what was happening in these acting classes in order to figure out what the psychological skills are that are being taught and being used and being integrated and, and being sort of applied in these classrooms, uh, both that are specific to acting, but that also are sort of generalizable to psychological functioning and social and emotional functioning in the rest of our lives. So the book talks about basically everything you would ever want to know about the psychology of acting and what happens in acting classes and what happens in performing characters sort of from the simplest, how do we engage with and control our bodies from a psychological perspective, all the way through this complexity of intense character study and scene study and all of that. So that was a longer explanation perhaps than what you were asking for, but it's coming out. It's uh, available online. You can get it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's being published by Teachers College Press, which is part of Columbia University Press. And you can get it from their website and it is available for pre-order um, now, depending on as of February, as of February of 2024, you can get it online and it'll be officially re released on July 26th of 2024. Um, so I'm really excited about it. And the website um, should be live by mid-March of 2024, and that's um, theateredmatters.com, or you can go to my website, taliagoldstein.com, and find out more information there. So, Catherine, you and I were talking just a little bit before I hit record. What kind words did you have to say about Talia? I thought the podcast was absolutely fascinating. What jumped out at you? I... You haven't met Talia, I don't think, but you were commenting that there's a lot of overlap with your kind of research interests and and our, and our shared research interests. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also my own personal interest. So all the talk about emotions being emergent, role playing is almost training, I thought was fascinating. And I really... I really understood where she was coming from when she was talking about exploring our own identities and exploring our boundaries and exploring our values. And that I thought connected really well with mine and Ethan's podcast. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's also being released this week for all of our new listeners. What about, so So you mentioned training there. I know this personally about you, and you mentioned it in the intro, that you kind of have a bit of trouble separating your own moral sensibilities from your character's moral sensibilities. Do you think there's like a way for you to train yourself out of that, <laughs> to to build up skills to move beyond this this kind of discomfort you sometimes feel? I think so, based on what Talia was saying as well. And I know she mentioned a lot, you know, we don't have evidence for a lot of these claims yet, but I thought a lot of the anecdotal evidence she talked about was really interesting. So from sort of theatre and acting, there's, there is evidence of people being able to become very skilled at this, you know, role play, this improvisation. So maybe practice makes perfect and I've just got to play the bad guy more often. So you're like a scholar in the space of VR methodologies, people are using VR as a kind of role-playing tool to help people train in certain kind of behavioral and emotional responses, right? So this overlaps with your interests? Yeah, definitely. There's a huge body of research now looking at virtual reality for training interpersonal skills. So developing empathy, compassion, even public speaking and social anxiety, which is fascinating, right? And VR seems to be a really good tool for for doing that. And then in helping professionals, morally relevant decisions like triage decisions. So I think it's absolutely possible. There's so much overlap in these different areas. And listening to that podcast made me want to play D&D more and made me want to push my boundaries more yeah. and experiment more. What would that be? What would you be looking to, what boundaries would you be looking to push? How would you structure that? Because presumably you could come in and go, oh, I'm going to be something, I'm, I'm going to be evil in quotation marks. But you and I are both psychologists and, you know, we have this intuition that we'd want to structure it. You'd want to structure your approach in some way. You'd want to, if not have criteria and milestones, at least ways in which you want to, you'd want to approach the task to like determine whether you're hitting those goals or not, right? Yeah, definitely. I think when I was listening to you both talk, I, at one point you posed the question to Talia about whether creating fictitious characters is a, a process of um, discovery or intervention, right? And I thought that was super interesting. And then Talia was talking about these anecdotes from fictional authors where they feel informed by the characters they've mm. created. Well, that made me want to create, basically structure a D&D experience for myself where instead of trying to inform my character, I was actually trying to receive messages from my character back to myself, which I don't know, maybe it sounds forced, but it made me think about the relationship the other way. Mm. which I haven't really done before. As a DM, I find that's actually kind of more my natural experience. I'm not good at role-playing. I hate, I'm not particularly good at role-playing, I don't think. I'm not comfortable doing vocal accents or affectations. And so I often have characters with like a motive, but after you all start interacting with them and pressing their buttons and trying to set their taverns on fire and things, um, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think I would have to figure out if this person was an angry person or a vengeful person or a fearful person. And so I'm almost always engaged in this process of discovery. That feels so much more natural to me. And I don't know if that's just my style or it's the the DM role that I've taken on. Yeah, maybe I'd imagine there's individual differences in this as well, right? But for me, that that felt less intuitive immediately. It was almost like 
I had this sense of going into this world with this carefully crafted character already. It's already set in stone. It's already done. And what I really liked about your conversation with Talia was this idea about, you know, self, self-discovery. Yeah, it was self-discovery and kind of creative play mm. in a way that I'd not really thought about before. So I found that really insightful. Yeah. Do you think of this as play? Do you think of Wednesday nights as play? Definitely. Oh, you do? Yeah, definitely. Because I see it, for me, it's the same as a a gaming night for me. Right. I think that's quite interesting because, I mean, I don't quite resonate with role playing in video games as much as you or as much as many people. Do you see the connections between like improv and and play? I mean, you just said it's like it's like play in a a game night. But yeah, I don't know. Draw, Draw that line for me. For me, it's I think and this is just my own personal experience i think it's the being transported to fictional narrative or a fictional world right it's not necessarily about the freedom or the degrees of freedom but just the um being somewhere else yeah i think the transportation part is the first part and then i and then obviously i talked about this with with ethan in our podcast the the boundaries are either stricter or looser right yeah Something that also occurred to me when I was listening to the podcast was the fact that Talia hadn't played D&D before, which was, to be honest, unexpected because she has this uh, really engaging way of speaking and she clearly studies theatre and improv. So I found that particularly interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for that reason, everything you just said there, Talia was one of the four guests I invited to do a one shot with us and then get like her reflections on that the the extent to which she felt like yeah she was she was putting into the character or the character was bleeding back into her um the places where that broke down and it just became a game about mechanics rather than improv so i mean we will be releasing that game towards the end of the season as well as all the players reflections but i thought talia's character was quite interesting because she she approached the task in the same way you kind of described it. She brought a character to the table, which she had already, she'd written like two pages of backstory. So she knew who the character was. She was inventing the character rather than discovering the character. So Yeah. So maybe there's a di- people that take this, they approach this in a very different way. And again, I've, there's probably, I, I mean, I don't know, but there's probably very little sort of empirical work on why that might be the case and how that affects your gameplay or how that affects bleed. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's, this is why we need to take the topic so much more seriously. <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's, it, it, even if we're not just, even if we're not studying D&D or TTRPG directly, it's a good tool. It's a good toy to play with, to like figure out how we build identities and how we figure these things out. Right. Yeah, definitely. And the, the, the other thing that really stood out for me in that episode was when you were both talking about kind of theory of mind and understanding others, but then Obviously, you spent a lot of time talking about exploring identities, but um, Talia mentioned that when you're exploring characters, you build confidence in certain actions, right? And she gave that really nice analogy of where, you know, you might wear some masculine boots in this fictional world. And then you realize that that gives you confidence. And so you decide, actually, I might start wearing, (laughs) I might start wearing these boots in the real world. And I thought that was, obviously, that's a really simple example but I think it really speaks to that transition backwards outside of these fictional worlds. And it would be, yeah, I can't wait to see more research on those kinds of things. Have you ever had that experience? And I don't mean specifically like mask boots or whatever, but have you ever had the experience of like, oh, that, 
that felt kind of good. I wonder if I can bring that into the real world. No. Oh. And and when I was listening to you both speaking, I I was envious of, and I, I kind of wanted to have had that experience. And I think it comes from me going in with this, a character that's too scripted and not thinking about this discovery process. Mm. So so listening to that podcast has made me realize I want to change how I play D and D, which is interesting. super interesting. Well, we're coming to towards the end of our current arc. Maybe in the next campaign. Yes. I the one thing I've learned. That kind of, because I have to put on the hat of NPCs and monsters and things. And the one thing that I've learned is that I wish I had slightly more patience in the real world. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I just stayed a little bit quiet, a little bit longer, and let other people fill that space before I just filled it with my own verbiage. <laughs> Here I am co-hosting a podcast, so, you know, haven't learned the lesson particularly well. <laughs> But it's nice to be able to listen to the podcast and then take away those, take away lessons not only for these kind of fictional characters or our our gameplay in D and D, but also our own our mm-hmm. own character development um, development and personality. I think that's why it's such an interesting topic. So, Catherine, I hadn't I hadn't really considered this to be an ongoing bit, but I think it might be kind of fun and interesting after listening to these episodes, listening to these conversations to kind of reflect on how they might change how we how we play D&D. So when we listen to your conversation next, we can reflect on where, how can we make morality more central or more impactful? Um, and then when we get to further episodes about imaginary worlds or what have you, we can kind of figure out how we might build that into our own like gaming practice or the practice of anyone who might be listening. I know you've you've kind of alluded to it already, but I don't know. Pitch a character. What what buttons might you like to push, given the next opportunity, given another opportunity? So, based on this podcast and the idea that we should be discovering through this creation of fictitious characters, p- kind of practicing through this play, I'd probably go for a character that I wouldn't normally choose. Mm-hmm. Some some one that is physically very different to me because mm-hmm. I usually, I usually design characters that look similar or they're, I don't know, super short, like I am in real life or something. <laughs> You've mostly played femme characters as well in, in my game. Yeah. Always femme characters, always smaller, smaller creatures as well. So probably, yeah, probably maybe a more masculine role, probably someone more aggressive. Yeah. Who doesn't think too much. <laughs> <laughs> would would so the obvious the obvious trope here is the barbarian right like yeah do you think that would be effective for you or would that be kind of like just too much of a trope you wouldn't necessarily explore it in a serious way whereas if you played a bit more of a thoughtful paladin type you could explore certain ideas that you wouldn't have without coming up against the the wall of stereotype yeah i think maybe something that would that would that would stop stereotypes is something a bit more nuanced but I going back to the beginning of this podcast when I think early on Talia was talking about how in improvisation you have these like generative experiences so you get a prop right and then you use that to generate an experience I think I try to use a small feature of that character Mm. and then do something more generative with it yeah which is not something I've tried before um, and maybe really consider the backstory of my character and how that might produce these kind of generative reactions or responses. Yeah. 
And whether you find it comfortable or not, I guess you've learned something, right? Exactly, exactly. But I'd almost be wanting it to be uncomfortable <laughs> to learn something, right? Yeah, well, I guess as your, as your current DM, uh, let's talk about it. Let's figure out how we can, how we can make, this, make this work in an, ongoing, in an ongoing manner. Awesome. Thank you all for listening to Mind Games. If you want to say hi, visit our Discord or visit mindgamespodcast.com about upcoming episodes and for information about our Kickstarter for Season 2. All links are available in the show notes. Please subscribe and pretty please write a review. I have it on good authority that those who write reviews make the best lovers. <laughs>